0: Welcome to Our Journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our radio roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we, the people, celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Peter Jay. This week, our session went quite long. That is, we were talking about climate change, an existential threat to us all. That said, we are featuring our More Perfect Union session today and next week in two parts. Just prior to our program's recording session, Dr. Natalia and I attended a Harvard Health Symposium on Health and Climate Change. The main speaker at this event, John Kerry, our former Senator, former Secretary of State, and under the current administration, our U.S. ambassador on climate change, our climate czar.
1: President Biden came to office after the terrible, sad, and counterintuitive three years of President Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement without any science, without any real rationale. And I'm afraid um, it, it cost us. I had the privilege of leading our efforts to negotiate the Paris Agreement. And we were very hopeful, obviously, that uh, the world was going to remain united and move in that direction. Only one president, only one leader of a country in the world pulled out of that agreement. And sadly, it was our country. So that has cost us somewhat. And most recently, uh, in 2018, the IPCC scientists, those are the scientists who are part of the um, international panel on climate change, the IPCC, which is a sub entity of the United Nations, which is the controlling entity of our global efforts, if you will, or the convening, not controlling, the convening entity. So um, immediately upon being sworn in, President Biden rejoined the Paris Agreement. Uh, and I can tell you from my early trips around the world, it, it, it took a little bit of convincing to to get people to really recognize the United States was back, and we were involved, and we were, in fact, leading a charge to do what we need to do to address this crisis. And it is a crisis. Um, so there are many different facets of it. I, I was fascinated by your affirmation of something I talk about a great deal, which is the degree to which the climate crisis is caused by the very thing that causes a whole host of health problems crises that you all deal with constantly. Uh, The climate crisis is caused by our energy policy, which um, burns fossil fuel in order to power our homes, move our vehicles, and so forth. And the problem is that it creates pollution. It's very simply that. Greenhouse gases are pollution. And it used to be a number of years ago that we we're pretty strong in this country in in in, in holding people accountable uh, with respect to pollution with a principle called polluter pays. And the polluter did pay. We charged people for the price of that pollution. Unfortunately, politics has gotten in the way of that and heavy lobbying by very special interests, namely the fossil fuel industry, uh, has won back some of the Hard fought gains we made in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, there hasn't been enough accountability for people who are polluting. And you pay the price for that in uh, several ways. You're taxpayers, you pay the price, but you pay the price every day in your work. Uh, we have an enormous number of children who every summer, you know, are hospitalized for environmentally induced asthma. And we spend in the billions of dollars for that. It is costly, as a health crisis. Um, and the fact is that the pollution that we put into the atmosphere that creates the heat blanket that contains the heat from, from escaping planet Earth. And instead, 90% of the heat that comes in as a consequence of global climate warming goes into the ocean and it is profoundly affecting the ocean. Uh, the ocean—it is hotter, in fact, on the on the planet today, because of what we're doing. That has been 125,000 years, and obviously, and we can measure those things scientifically. But obviously, uh, you know, human beings haven't been around for 125,000 years, so we're seeing changes that are coming about because of human input, uh, and we are accelerating. Uh, some of the health accelerating the health challenges and accelerating deaths all around the world as a consequence of air quality. I think we lose about 7 million people a year uh, to pollution. Uh, and obviously um, the medical costs of that are enormous, the social costs, the costs uh, to our communities. But also the particulates that are in the air from coal burning. Coal is the principal, is the huge, biggest culprit. It's the dirtiest fuel on the planet. Now we're not we're not building new coal plants in the United States. Uh, happily, we're beginning. They're phasing out. We've closed over 800, over 500 coal plants. I think about another 58 or so will close this year. Uh, we'll have 100 or so left, and those will be closing over the next years. And the trend of the next 10 years of of our efforts to reduce by 50 to 52% the emissions that the Biden administration has set as a goal, and other countries have set that goal. We had a summit in April. We had 40 nations take part in this summit. 20 of those nations are the largest producer of greenhouse gas emissions. And we are one of those 20, we are number two fact, in the level of our emissions. Number one is China. China produces about three times the emissions that we do, uh, and it's a serious challenge. And I just came back from China last week, where we're negotiating to try to get China to do more to reduce these levels faster, because the scientists have told us the next 10 years, this decade, 2020 to 2030, must be the decade of uh, action, of of real reduction, and the scientists have also told us that during the next 10 years, we must reach a goal of reducing our emissions by at least 45%, and that has to happen globally. So Every country has got to be part of this effort. Now, 20 countries are the equivalent of about 80% of all the emissions in the world. China is about 28%, we're about 11%. Then we have India, about 9%, Russia behind us, uh, and, and Brazil and their group of countries, Mexico, South Africa, Indonesia, all of whom have really got to step up. And we're working with those countries under President Biden's direction to try to get everybody to step up at the same time. We have a meeting in Glasgow, in Scotland, on the 1st of November, About 59 or so days from now, uh, we've been working towards this meeting, raising our own ambitions in order to try to reduce emissions. So the United States has helped coordinate Japan, Canada, the UK, the EU, and all of us are now on a track that if we keep the track, if we do what we're supposed to do, we will be able to keep the idea of a 1.5 degree limit in the rise of temperature, we keep that alive. If we don't reduce enough emissions between now and 2030, not only do we kill the 1.5 degrees, but we will not achieve net zero by 2050, which is the goal of most countries in the world. So this is a critical moment. There are so many different ways in terms of health that we're feeling the impacts of the climate crisis, not the least of which is heat. Uh, we're losing people uh, to, uh, to, to the extreme heat in various parts of the world, including in our own country. And it seems incongruous, doesn't it, that in, in year 2021 in the country as technologically proficient as we are, that, that just walking outdoors and the level of heat Uh, should be as much of a crisis as it is in many places.
0: Hello, everyone. And as they often say, the times, they are a-changing. But the climate, it are a-changing as well. And we need to have a discussion about that. In fact, uh, on this particular Thursday morning, September the 9th, uh, only yesterday, our president was talking not so much about the future, but about the present consequences of climate change. And he began speaking in terms of how do we at least keep things from getting worse because it is upon us. Hello, I'm Peter J. with me once again. Our stalwart roundtable is here. Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker Jones, and our representative Jeff Roy, hello to you all. And we have a special guest with us this morning, Dr. Ray Liu. Who is involved in interventional radiology at mass general Hospital now, sir, would that be full contact interventional
2: radiology it's uh full contact I guess by with patients, but absolutely I, I like to say that I like to play video games, so I, Excellent. I, yep it's a fun
0: profession and so turning to the discussion of of climate change, who at this point would like to jump in?
3: I can jump in, Pete, and I think let's narrow the conversation a little bit to climate and health. I think you know we have been talking about climate change from the you know perspective of you know what can we do in terms of mitigation adaptation what are we doing here in Massachusetts but just i think this week 200 medical journals including the lancet the bmj um the new england journal of medicine the top tier journals all together published the same editorial saying that climate change is The global health emergency of our generation and this morning as you mentioned um senator secretary kerry spoke at the harvard medical school giving grand rounds about the role of physicians and since i have invited uh dr Liu ray to join us today i think let's go there because many people have been thinking that climate change is about you know polar bears but it's really about our children it's about our grandparents it's about our pregnant moms who are all going to face the challenges. It's not just asthma, it's everything. Climate change and air pollution impacts every single part of our bodies and it is happening today and the risk for future generations is much greater. So I'm going to pitch it over to Ray because you've been doing some work on, and you are a frontline healthcare worker, I'm a public health person. So, you know, are you seeing things here in Massachusetts or beyond um, in the emergency rooms or, or beyond
2: well, well, thank you for that kind introduction, all. I'm, I'm honored to be among such a, esteemed uh, colleagues here. And this group knows really well uh, what Natalia is talking about. Um, yes, I am uh, at the front line of, at, at MGH. Um, you know, I was part of the COVID response, and um, many here were also part of the COVID response at different times. Um, and, and yes, we, we see the effects of climate change um, and health, right? Every single day in our in our emergency room, it could be summer, it could be fall, it could be winter. There are just so many different ways that we think about climate change beyond the polar bears, like you think, like you just said, Italia, which I like. I just want to sort of go over a few and then open it up for discussion. I mean, um, Nathalie, you mentioned about respiratory symptoms. That's obviously a big one. The wildfires were high in our news. I think I opened up one day in the Globe and saw that pollution levels within Boston were worse than Beijing. And for those of you who have been to Beijing, it's pretty bad over there. And that's quite amazing. And that's all from the West Coast wildfires. But we think about the air pollution. We think about allergens. Um, we think about the pollen that is worse with the um, with the wet um, with the wet precipitation. Beyond respiratory, we can think about the temperature extremes, Natalia. Right? I mean, and in the emergency room um, all through the summer. I mean, it was really really tough. Heat strokes everywhere. You know, in the northwest, 600 people died from uh, the heat waves. It was just un- unprecedented. And a few other areas which people may not think about. Um, we think about infectious diseases. We think about waterborne diseases uh, that get shifted with climate change we think about food insecurity, maybe not so much around um, America, but you know, I live in Brookline, part of Norfolk County. The food pantry is a real thing. That is something that um, I volunteer at. And there are a lot of individuals food, with food insecurity. And as um, climate change changes the temperature and there's decreased percentages of um, outgrowth, it's gonna be an issue. And, and finally, I just wanna end with the fact that mental health is, is part of the climate change discussion, right? The stresses around what we suffer, Um, everything that's going on for both providers and also um, patients. It's it's a real issue and truly in our neighborhood. So open up for discussion to others.
0: Well, I have to say, I was a little bit shocked hearing about people literally drowning in their basement apartments in places where you never, ever thought that you would hear something like that. And it changes the paradigm with respect to what we consider preparedness. And so uh, that was something that was discussed with respect to what do we do? Even here in Boston, it was part of the discussion regarding the marrow race recently. And all that said, I remember having a preparedness discussion in our area in Franklin on November 2019, a significant date because we all know what was happening then. And And finally, found its way to us only a scant two months later. Well, guess what? (laughs) The pandemic wasn't on our radar during that two-day preparedness conference. At the Harvard Symposium on Climate Change and Public Health, there were about a 1,000 doctors present, all esteemed in their various roles. At the outset of the question and answer period, the following question. Looking beyond the politics of climate change, is there some way to equate the issues of climate change as being matters of public health. Is there an opportunity there?
1: Well, the answer is profoundly yes. Uh, Yes, it is a great opportunity. Uh, Sadly, because our politics is broken, we don't have the same kind of validation of an idea from the public sector as we used to, at least from the elected public sector, from people who are allegedly our leaders. And too many of them, until President Biden came in, we, we just had no leadership on this. President Biden is leading now, but even so, uh, the voices of Washington are distrusted, as all of you know. So where do you go to move people? Your voices are as powerful as anybody in the country. Uh, you're, you're the folks who are saving lives. You've been on the front line of this pandemic. Everybody knows the sacrifices that have been made And I think if you can find a way to aggregate your voices uh, and and speak out over these next months, you can have a profound impact on political activity. This is gonna be a very hard fought fight in Washington for the infrastructure bill and for the so-called reconciliation bill, which is a fancy word for a legislative process. But the bottom line is that bill is gonna have most of the money that we need to be able to deal with adaptation, resilience and mitigation in order to lower the emissions. So we need your voices as professionals and as people intimately connected to communities and to individual families. You have an ability to make a difference here, and I hope you'll speak out. That's the key.
0: But also, too, climate change and the subsequent uh, health consequences were not on that discussion everyone was having a discussion that was much more close in and i think that until we begin to take a look at the larger existential threats that impact our preparedness profile i think we may be aiming a little bit low that's just my thought yeah
4: i'd like you know climate change is uh, especially around health has so many interesting facets let me take the one in terms of the minority community because apparently we have not spent enough time talking about the impact of not only ignoring climate change but putting facilities that we know are detrimental to health in places where it has a real severe desperate impact upon minorities. So uh, I know we've been talking uh, nationally and globally about trying to reverse. Uh, But recently I saw a report from one of the, uh, and and I can't remember her name, uh, a sociologist who was saying that we ought to also talk about trying to help not only those minorities who have been disparately injured, but also parts of the globe that we've injured where people Uh, especially in third world countries, where they've done nothing to contribute, but again, are the recipients. Uh, What are your thoughts about not just helping to lower the temperature, so to speak, uh, but also to help those countries that are in desperate need of changing their, uh, or in upgrading their economies and helping them to, uh, the report said, basically, skip over the industrialized age and go right to Uh, renewable power sources in terms of building their countries?
3: Michael, that's a really quick question. I mean, the climate uh, emergency is a justice and an equity issue, hugely so in every country in the world. Uh, Here in the U.S., we know that people who are mostly impacted are communities of color and low-income households. You know, the fact that a baby drowned in New York City, they drowned because they were living in an underground home probably because the parents couldn't afford to live in an above ground. You know, it is interconnected. Poverty, um, racism, as well as climate change in our country. But the global question is even more pressing in some ways because of in the globe right now, and, and many of you know, I worked at the UN and I did work on climate and health for the UN. The largest emitters are, you know, China, number one, US, number two. We have the EU, we have Brazil, we have countries that have a lot more than, than many of the places that are actually feeling the impact. The small islands, the small island developing states, as they call them in the UN, you know, the Maldives, places which are really today facing an existential threat where their government is trying to figure out if they can buy land in other parts of the world to move their entire populations. Like, they are drowning, literally. And they don't have, they're not emitting, you know, even countries like India, who are big emitters, the per capita, emission is very, very small. And actually, uh, Pete, Secretary Kerry spoke about that, about that inequity that people are calling out, calling out Americans that we, you know, and I'm a mom of three kids. I always am embarrassed about that because my kids are going to be such huge emitters. Um, You know, the, the American children, American adults are just basically, you know, our footprint is very different. Which to me means that our responsibility is also much bigger. We have a responsibility not only to limit our emissions here, but to also support the countries that, because of the last you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we have unintentionally, maybe, although you know many in the climate literature would say we knew much earlier, we just chose not to do anything, um, that we have harmed these communities. So at the UN, we separate adaptation and mitigation, right? Mitigation is about reducing your carbon footprint. Adaptation is about making sure that people are able to live today and deal with a crisis today. And money needs to go into adaptation. Money needs to go into countries that are really poor that need to today move their populations from the coast because they will drown. They need some support. So some of that development money. So it's really important to make sure we're not only talking about mitigation, which is lowering our emissions, but also how are we adapting to the climate today for those who are most at risk.
2: I think that's fantastic. Natalia, you just hit the nail on the head, but just um, to emphasize something that Michael brought up, right? And this equity issue on a global scale. And, And how do you have that conversation with countries That you're right, Michael. Right, they're they're being asked to leapfrog. Right, I mean, so uh, we, as sort of the "quote-unquote" rich countries, went through our own industrial age. We historically have been huge carbon emitters, and now, sort of, you you'll hear people say, "Well, everyone's got to do their fair share," and you know, and not and, and go with green, but that's expensive. The technology isn't there yet, and so really, what we need to do is support policies, um, representatives, uh, statesmen, and women um, who understand that we have to do more than our fair share, right? So there's a commitment for about, a, uh, you know, looking back into the editorial that uh, Natalia mentioned, right? Uh, uh, Women, uh, uh, high-income countries have a commitment to spend about $100 I don't even know whether they'll hit that, but there's an argument to be said that we need to do more than that, right? We have to overcommit to understand that our historical piece here has to make up for the idea that there's
5: these inequalities across the globe. No, I want to uh, chime in on the uh, political front, as I'm so glad that you're putting this in a, a public context. Uh, it's been frustrating over the years here uh, people continue to say that uh, change is a hoax, and there are people that hold on to that myth uh, to this day. And And Natalie, you were talking historically about things that we could have done. I I always uh, back to, uh, there were two moments in the 80s that stand out in my mind. And and, uh, one of them is uh, Jimmy Carter, who had uh, solar panels on the roof of the West Wing at the White House. And when Ronald Reagan came into office, one of the first uh, moves that he made was to remove those panels from the roof uh, of the West Wing. And I think constantly of how different the world would be today had we uh, continued the work and the research and the efforts uh, back in 1980. And uh, electric vehicles uh, were uh, produced by General Motors in the 80s, but off the road uh, at the end of the 80s. And, uh, you know, it's it's a, a political football when you talk about uh, climate change, uh, but we're getting better and, and people are now beginning to believe that uh, the crisis that we've been talking about for 50 years is is actually real and uh, thank God we're having that discussion but unfortunately because we're so delayed in this discussion all of these public health consequences are coming to the uh, coming to the top and uh, I'm delighted that uh, you know you folks wrote that piece uh, in Commonwealth magazine a, a couple of weeks ago really, uh, opened my eyes. Uh, I I had known about it uh, in theory, but you really crystallized for me and so many others. And that you know, if we're not ready to address this, it's not going to get better. So uh, thanks, thanks for uh, putting that out there in the public sp- uh, sphere.
0: It's also interesting that uh, not only did the Carter administration seek to address it in some way, but also uh, through the Clinton years, uh, Al Gore really became a champion first with his original film, An Inconvenient Truth, and then a sequel that went to that. And so much of that since that time has really unveiled itself, not just to be theory, but hard fact. I think it's it's also very interesting that
4: the deniers at the same time are keeping us from what I think is a more advanced conversation, as well as addressing the issue. And I'd like to hear from uh, Ray, from you and Natalia uh, on another topic, which is the the idea that there needs to be a public courage to push our politicians into spending dollars uh, for a result that most of us will not see in our lifetime or that our kids will not see in their lifetime, but we need to spend the money to do it now. And that brings up a very interesting situation around public monies, taxes, debt, uh, and it. And I'm not being hyperbolic here, but at what point do we stop talking about the money and start talking about life preservation on this planet? Uh, I mean, I don't think we can put a price tag on that. And there are some things that And many of you have heard me talk about before, uh, and I would put this into that category, that we really should not talk about the expense. We just ought to do it. Uh, And that's magnetic levitation trains, purely electric trains. And the idea that the scope of building that in terms of health, as well as the preservation of life on this planet, does not have a, I don't think you can put a price tag on life on the planet. But I'd really love your uh, you know, all of your feedback, friends, here.
3: So lot lots of things to to reflect on on what you said, Michael. I'm just gonna start with the last piece. I, I don't know about magnetic trains, but I do know that public transportation is mm-hmm. important. Good for mm-hmm. health because people mm-hmm. walk more, uh, good for the environment, good for getting people to jobs. So there are clear, you know, again at the UN and maybe in other political spheres, we used to call them triple wins. You know, you have a health win, you have an economic win because people can get to work. You also have um, a climate win by investing. And th- this is where we need to be thinking about where we're politically going to be pushing forward. So uh, free public transportation, free buses, you know, might be the cheapest way to get to those those triple benefits.
0: Returning to the Harvard Symposium, a question was raised for John Kerry to reflect on with respect to the Line 3 pipeline and whether or not the Biden administration might take some steps to stop it?
1: Well, there's big protests going on about the pipeline. And the pipeline is bringing tar sands fuel to the United States, which many people object to and don't think we should be doing. Uh, President Biden's fundamental policy has been to uh, not uh, engage in new project projects, but that is not a new project. So it, it sort of falls outside of where uh, the administration has drawn a line, which is controversial enough uh, in the sense that uh, uh, we are not renewing drilling in certain areas. The president has said no drilling in public lands. So he's taken a pretty, uh, I'd say a very tough stand, uh, but a lot of people feel the stand ought to be more than just tough, it ought to be uh, absolutely uh, precluding any kind of movement of uh, fossil fuel, et cetera, from one place to another in any kind of pipeline. Um, I, I have not been actually directly involved in those discussions because I'm responsible for traveling the world and being engaged in bringing other countries on board and trying to get ready for the Glasgow meeting. Um, but I certainly personally am in favor of trying to reduce um, our dependency and and not be engaging in new activities. And by the way, the International Energy Agency just came out with a report saying that uh, there there are several keys to our ability to succeed in this climate fight. One is to have super deployment now of existing technologies. The other is to have the super effort to discover the new technologies. And the third is no more new fossil fuel projects. So I think the movement is in that direction. Uh, and we'll see so sort of where, where we wind up in short order. But um, I think things are changing.
3: There are other places where we can see a very clear environmental and health benefit happening. Um, and, you know, Ray at the beginning talked a lot about the the impacts that we're seeing. Some impacts that he didn't talk about are, are just, you know, with the rising temperature, we're seeing more ticks, we're seeing more malaria, we're seeing more, you know, vector-borne diseases, uh, you know, preparedness, public health preparedness, even COVID, you know, while it's not linked to climate change, it's what we call a zoonotic Disease, you know, it's transferring from from animals to humans. Ebola was the same. With climate change, we will expect to have much more of this animal-human interaction. And and you know, so public health preparedness goes hand in hand with climate preparedness. But your your comment on communications and how do we persuade the public? I think, and Ray, maybe you've seen this literature that says that you know doctors and nurses are actually really trusted um voices they might you know the public might not want to hear you jeff say you know climate change is real because you're a politician we we doubt politicians but maybe if they had their primary health physician so how do we get more voices you know i have seen the youth you know whether it's greta or youth in my community in brookline high school students getting out there and really convincing their parents and their grandparents that this is real so how do we build that momentum with everybody bringing in different expertise to change the narrative from not something that will impact you know, three generations down the line, but it's impacting us today. It'll impact our children. And we need action at the magnitude that you're saying, Michael, we can't, we don't even need to put a price tag because life doesn't have a price tag in that sense. But Ray, what do you think of that?
2: Couldn't agree more. I think getting that story out there, that narrative, right, that this is important and we need to, I'm going to go back to one of the things that Michael said about spending money, because oftentimes it is about money and just want to you know link this back to the you know the 3.5 trillion bill that's across uh, congress right now my understanding and jeff can speak to this is senator warren came to franklin to speak a little bit about this and baked into the 3.5 trillion bill is significant support for climate change and how do you have more people like Senator Warren but you're right not just the senators and the polls and Bernie Sanders out in Iowa talking about this right how do you have trusted individuals from the community drum up support and that support translates into power quite frankly political power and uh, would love to see that they'll get across the finish line but we'll see it's a, it's a big number.
0: there's a lot to be said for uh, doctors and nurses being able to have the the, uh, the forum to be able to speak to that. And and that is speaking to it from a media standpoint, which is sort of my technical expertise. One of the things that we need are the equivalent of rock stars. Obviously, there are people like Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, who, you know, that's what the public equates as being, you know, public health. And, and oftentimes they're busy promoting something occasionally questionable, but Uh, We do need to find people who are both considered uh, to be uh, esteemed, legitimate, and at the same time at large who can address the issue. Uh, Also, too, um, the virality of things on the Internet in general via social media is it's either a weapon or a blessing, depending upon who's behind it. And I do wish that we could facilitate a robust discourse uh, through social media. Now, some of the ingredients for virality, of course, are bombast, grounded or not, and that's an issue. But being able to take a conversation like this one, and instead of it being just another learned, quiet discourse that happens somewhere, how it is that you make that open, notorious viral, so that way the word gets out there as being something that people need to pay attention to. And in fact, not only get behind, but pass along. That is a very serious challenge, because the topic itself doesn't really lend itself to that sort of communication. And that's, I think, one of the big challenges that we have, because there is this complexity. You know, we we talk about global warming and the health consequences. All of a sudden, it's gotten to be a less than easy to digest topic that doesn't reduce itself well to quick sound bites. Thanks for joining us on More Perfect Union. Join us again next week when we continue our topic on climate change.